Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Later in the show, IPR bluesman Bob Dorr will be here to share his list of the best new blues recordings of 2023. But first, we are all shaped by our families, our culture, and our identities. Finding a therapist who understands where you're coming from can be truly powerful, and those therapists can be hard to come by, especially for people of color. This hour, we'll explore the mental health challenges that face Black communities and meet mental health advocates who are working hard to make things better. With me, Audrey Kennis, a Director of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion for the City of West. Des Moines. Hello, Audrey. Good morning. Thank you so much for being here. Mathia Little-Smith is also here, a consultant and volunteer for NAMI of Iowa. She also leads the mental health ministry at her Baptist church. Hello, Mathia. Hello. How are you? Good. Thank you for being here as well. And of course, in the last three years in particular have been incredibly difficult. They have brought to life many mental health challenges for people in all communities, but uh, they've been particularly difficult for members of black communities because not only have we all lived through COVID, but then the events surrounding the murder of George Floyd and so many other things have really brought a lot of challenges to the surface. But none of this is new. And, and, we could talk statistics, but I feel like they're not very illuminating. I would love for each of you to really help me understand from your perspective, what are some of the challenges that face black communities when it comes to mental health? And Mathia, can, can you start? How is it different for black Iowans? Well, I th- I'm glad you used the example of George Floyd because... I always say, anyway, forget that. Um, I remember I was on Facebook at the time, and one of my good friends that lives in Rhode Island now sent me a text saying, I am really so sorry for you. That must have been really hard. And I was so angry. And, And I really do like her still. I sent her one back, said, this has been going on for years. This is not new for us. And so it's like your privilege now shows me that you've got a lot to learn. So it's like it has been hard particularly for our mothers and our young men for a very long time. And it hasn't gotten better. That's the other thing. It's gotten worse. Well, give me an idea of, you know, some of the things that you learned when you were younger about mental health challenges for people in black communities that, that still are true? The biggest deal is the, the stigma. The stigma is terrible. Um, my mother lived with a mental health issue, and she was in the hospital for a year. Um, unfortunately for me, because I was the oldest, not only did I get teased, but kids could not play with us. There were six of us because they didn't know what was wrong with us. And so that was a challenge. And then as I raised my sons, um, 
I had, you know, that talk that they talk about. I had to have a serious talk, particularly with my oldest that tends to not listen. And if a police officer got smart with him, he'd get smart right back. And so I was lucky that he never got pulled over by the police uh, policeman. However, my father did. And my father was 73 years old, I think, when he got pulled over. And it's like, are you kidding me? And so I had to explain to that, that to my kids. And it is mentally challenging for them because they don't know how to process it. And me, as an African-American mother, how do I process it? So... Um, you know, we all come up with something, but the deal is why it's so important for me to have the mental health ministry at the Baptist Church is to have another outlet that's safe for African-American folks to actually reach out. What I hear you saying is, you know, as I mentioned it, there are mental health challenges in all communities, but you're talking about layer upon layer upon layer for black Americans that that can be things that, that white Americans have a difficult time understanding and, and empathizing with because we have, there is this long, long history of trauma that informs how you interact with the world on a daily basis. Is that what you're saying, Mithia? Um, yes, and I guess to make it a little clearer, and we don't have enough mental health professionals in the first place, but then let's cut it down to African-American professionals. Many of our folks go to um, mental health professionals that are not of color, and many of them don't have a clue what they're talking about, which many times they can't figure out why black folks only go to a therapist one time and it's because it's very challenging to talk to somebody that doesn't understand what you're talking about give me give me an understanding because again i can imagine somebody listening and saying well a mental health professional is a mental health professional why is there this disconnect tell me why there can be such a disconnect if the therapist really doesn't understand where their client is coming from. Well, I'll give you an easy one. Um, there was me and my son that were talking, and we started laughing about something, but we were kind of loud. And the therapist got upset and said, I need for you to calm down right now because... Um, you don't deserve to be this angry. It's like, firstly, we were not angry. We were laughing. And my son really did need therapy. And we had to find someplace else to go because I didn't stay there. But she didn't understand that part of the African-American culture is being loud. That's who we are. And um, I've heard that same thing about other cultures. They have done something that was cultural and the therapist didn't understand them at all. Right, so you've gone to the therapist for help and are mm -hmm. met with judgment. Exactly. 
Audrey, I would love for you to jump into this conversation. I mean, you are the director of DEI for the city of West Des Moines, and I, I know that there's a, a lot of um, questions about what DEI, what diversity, equity, and inclusion means at this moment in time. So I would love to start off by you telling us what your job is so we do have an understanding. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, when we use that acronym DEI, really it is a way for folks to be seen, you know, and, and to have their needs met, right? And so it is something that applies to everyone, whether that's someone with a disability, um, someone with a racialized identity, um, if we're talking about socioeconomics, right? But it's being able to meet people where they are at, you know, and as a city, as a, a governmental entities, we do this every day, right? We're working with residents and our job isn't to serve one set of residents. We serve all our residents. And so in doing this, we have to be mindful of the different experiences, the different needs um, in our service delivery um, as we're working with um, our constituents and our community members, our residents, um, to ensure that they're able to thrive in our community. That's what we're getting to. So how do we create a welcoming city, right, a welcoming community where everyone can thrive no matter what their background, their experiences, their abilities, their needs may be? You know, even as we see an aging population here in Iowa, we have to be mindful of our built environment. We have to be mindful of, you know, again, the different housing facilities or types that we're offering to meet the needs of a growing and aging populace. And so these conversations, I think, are relevant to everyone, but sometimes it's um, sometimes demonized to mean one thing over the other, and it's not a binary conversation, right? It's one that is a broad spectrum of identities and experiences uh, that everyone should be reflected in. And this hour, we are focusing particularly on the mental health challenges of the black community. Of course, many minority communities struggle with similar challenges unique to the challenges of that particular community. But Audrey, I'd love for you to help help paint this picture that, yeah. that Mathia and I have been putting together here. What, from your perspective, make the challenges of Iowa's black mm. community different than our white communities, for example. Yeah. Yeah, I think going back to what you all were talking about is this kind of historical trauma, right? There is a historical social and then there's the personal challenges and traumas that have been experienced, but this collective trauma within the black community that often isn't acknowledged or talked about. Right. Um, and so, you know, we can't just jump past, you know, there was the enslavement of Africans here in America that we know of. But then after, you know, again, that was abolished, it was just, you know, business as normal. And so there was never a space or a place for black people to really want to acknowledge or even the broader nation to acknowledge the trauma that was inflicted. Um, and so it's been hard within the black community, and I think just broadly to talk about how this collective and historical trauma continues to permeate and what often happens. And I see here, and I see, you know, it's not germane or just uh, restricted to Iowa, but I see it all across the nation, across the diaspora of those who have experienced uh, or descendants of those who are enslaved is um, there is um, – a lot of attributes that are considered culture, but really are trauma. Um, and so sometimes we attribute trauma to culture and behaviors or, you know, um, um, mannerisms or things that we see happening often in the black community 
that really isn't a part of the culture. But again, this is a, a response, right? These are response measures uh, to traumas that have been experienced that are passed down from generation to generation. I mean, I'll say just personally, my experience, I had shared this at the NAMI conference of my father, which... You know, Audrey, f- I want you to share that story, but I want you to share it in just a few minutes because I don't, I don't want to have to cut you off. We do have to take a short break. Okay. Audrey Kennis is Director of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion for the City of West Des Moines. Mathia Little-Smith is also here, consultant and volunteer for NAMI of Iowa, and she also leads the mental health ministry at her Baptist church. We are talking about mental health challenges in Iowa's black community. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Coming up in just about 15 minutes, IPR bluesman Bob Doerr will be here to share his list of the best new blues recordings of 2023. Right now, however, we are talking about mental health challenges that face Black Iowans and members of the Black communities all over the United States. With me this hour to help us understand, but also to talk about the work they and others are doing to make things better, are Mathia Little-Smith. She's a consultant and volunteer for NAMI of Iowa, and she also leads the Mental Health Ministry at her Baptist Church. Audrey Kennis is here, Director of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion for the City of West Des Moines. And Audrey, just before the break, you were going to, to share a personal story about your family that really really sheds light on the challenges faced by many Black Iowans and Black Americans. Tell us what happened. Yeah. So, you know, it was, so I'll just share, my father was born before the Great Depression. And for someone of my age, that's very uncommon. So he had me in his late 50s. Um, And, you know, growing up, you know, I had a a two-parent household. My father retired when I was four. And, you know, they had, there was some dysfunction in our family. Um, and I remember they would always just say, yeah, you know, they're just crazy. You always hear this term, they're just crazy, they're just crazy. And not really understanding it, my father would always reference, well, they're going to, you, you kids are crazy. We're going to, if you keep acting this way, they'll send you to Pueblo. Now, I grew up in Colorado. And not really making that connection, it wasn't until after my father passed that I found a letter that was dated in February 1958. And I have the letter here with me. Um, and it was just such an eye-opening experience. None of us had known he was committed to the Colorado State Insane Asylum in the late 50s. And again, I got bits and pieces of this story, but never got the full story. And he said he was arrested for stealing items from his, he owned a grocery store um, and was uh, court ordered, uh, sanctioned to be committed. I had so much anger and so resentment. So he was arrested for stealing items from his own store. That's what I was told. That's what he shared with us. And he would tell us he was arrested, never understood he was committed um, to, uh, again, the, the uh, what they called, again, the Colorado State Insane Asylum at this time. And at this time, they were doing, you know, forced sterilizations, electroshock treatment. So this was kind of before the change in how they approached mental health. 
Um, and so I could see how, again, the trauma and internalized depression would show up every day in his lived experience. And then I had my mother, who, you know, was a child of the civil rights. And I could see very two different lived experiences and how they were trying to reconcile with, you know, overt racism and, and with, you know, lack of opportunity that were afforded or not afforded to them and how they were trying to make sense of it and even explain it to us as children. Um, but again, these were things that were never really talked about. Um, and so, again, it wasn't until after he was gone that I found this letter that really helped me to, to shed light and make sense of what was going on in his world. I'm so sorry that your family experienced that. But I do think that there are are so many elements of that that we can take away and generalize a little bit about this reluctance to reach out to mental health professionals that we've heard about in the black community. It's sometimes it's people just say, oh, it's cultural. But here's a perfect example, Audrey, of a family with a traumatic history, a man who likely needed help and right. was punished instead of being helped. And that's a story that you hear again and again from black Americans. Correct. Correct. And it is. It's hard because Oftentimes there are things happening in our community that we don't always have the language to name. And that's the other challenge, right? And so there are behaviors, adaptive behaviors that people develop as coping skills um, to deal with the, the circumstances or the, the lived environment they're, they're born into. Uh, but they don't always have the language to name it. So, right, we often have deficit language um, to, to talk about what we're experiencing without understanding really where this is coming from. And so this is why we have to, one, be able to start having these conversations, having more mental health providers that not only understand our experience but relate to the experience. Um, so you're not having to try to convince people every time of what's going on. Well, and Mathia, you were sharing earlier how personally painful it was to go to a therapist who did not understand who you were and what you were bringing to this experience. And I mentioned earlier how powerful, of course, it can be for anybody to have a therapist who really understands them. In the black community, obviously, it doesn't mean that a therapist is going to 100% understand you if they share this element of your identity, but they've got a better shot at it. And Mathia, there are only 23 black mental health professionals in the entire state of Iowa. So not only do we have a, a lack of mental health professionals, period, but it, it, it's incredibly difficult for black Iowans to find someone who can serve them who is part of that community. And because there's um, nationwide, there's not enough mental health professionals. So one of the things that NAMI has done that actually is evidence-based is to have peers work with peers. And it's really very, very important to me that I do the outreach to get more peers, that means African-American in my case, that can talk to their peers. And I'm from Minnesota. And I was the director of African-American outreach in, for NAMI, Minnesota. And basically, I went to churches, which have always been the hub for our community as far as social justice, and recruited folks to be peers to work with their peers. And they also, the very good thing is, 
many of their peers could tell them, well, I went to this therapist and it didn't work for me. And they would give reasons why. As a peer, I'm not a professional, so therefore I'm not going to give them that information. But the other folks in those groups or education classes can give them the information. So it's inside stuff. Mathia, you've been, you mentioned being from Minnesota, from Minneapolis. You've been in Iowa for nearly 13 years. And you thought that you were retired when you came to Iowa. (laughs) But then you saw this need. Tell me a, a little bit about that moment when you realized I have to personally be involved in doing something about this because this is work that's not being done. Well, I can put it real easily. Up until a little bit over a year ago, I was the only African-American NAMI volunteer or consultant in the whole state of Iowa that worked with peers. Now, if that doesn't sound like there's a few issues, I'll tell you, there's a few issues. And so... Um, one of the things that I've done is worked with many folks so that they learn how to do what I call active listening, which is a little bit different than the active listening that um, the Caucasian um, culture will try to teach. And it's... um, I'm actually doing a little bit. I um, I actually recruited one, one whole person as a consultant. Now, that might sound like it's not a whole lot. Uh, did you mention I was here almost 13 years? Yeah. It took me that long to get just one. Wow. So... I want to look to the future. You both are doing such important work right now, but let's talk about some of the things that that you see that could change in Iowa, that you feel should change in Iowa to create resources, a safety net when it comes to mental health in the black community. And, and Audrey, I'll let you go first. What what do you feel is your number one priority moving forward? Well, again, I think education is the biggest thing, right? Having these conversations. So I'm grateful that you all made time and space for this. Because we need to, one, just start having more conversations, but educating the community and other communities about it, right? Because we're not going to have, you know, a, a, a overflow of probably black mental health providers in the next year or even two to meet the demand and probably the need. But even for, you know, non-black, whether that be white, Latinx, Latino, Asian, whoever it might be, to build that cultural awareness and humility. So when you're working with, you know, uh, individuals who have come from, you know, an experience where they've had some type of historical and collective trauma, we can be able to navigate that in a way that, again, is responsive. 
Um, so I think that's a big piece of it is just really building that cultural awareness, right? And I don't like to say competence because no one's ever fully competent in culture. Culture is ever evolving, but that we build that awareness um, and start having these conversations. And I'm proud. One thing I'll say of, of our city is we're trying to take some intentional efforts, right? And so we have a, a crisis intervention team, right? And so when we're dealing with, you know, 911 or police calls, um, we have a, a Dallas County health clinician who is dispatched when we know someone is maybe in short or long-term crisis. So instead of, instead of taking a, a more, you know, I would say conventional approach, uh, we have to reimagine what it looks like to help individuals who are in crisis. Mathia, I'd love for you to build on that. What other priorities do you have moving forward for Iowa? Well, the most important part to me is we kind of touched on um, my mental health ministry at the Baptist Church. Well, we were lucky in that we have a pastor that has his doctorate in community mental health, and his wife um, is a family therapist, and I might not have that one right. But the point is that it used to be you didn't talk about mental health in the churches. It's like if you had any kind of different behavior, the devil was hmm. was um, dealing with you. And so now folks are understanding, yes, just kind of like when you break your arm. You need to pray, but you also need to get some kind of professional help and you can depend upon peers to give you that support and and realize this is not a monolithic response. You know, we're talking about educational changes. We're talking about LGBT folks, which it's very challenging in the African-American community to get support. So basically, I hope I answered your question. I This is a difficult time of year. You know, it's a difficult world that we live in, and this is a difficult time of year for a lot of people as well. Um, I would love, Mathia, can you give me a few things that, that we might look for that, that might lead us to ask for help this time of year? Because we know that it's hard to ask for help. But can you give me some, some warning signs that, oh, you know what, maybe this is a time when I do need to reach out to ask for help? Um, actually, there, there's so many right now because what might be a warning sign for me might not be a warning sign for someone else. The deal is if, in fact, it's, it's actually put on the person that is living with the issue, they know when they're in crisis. I mean, that's not a surprise to them. It needs to be safe for them to be able to say, I'm in crisis, and they might, and to have someplace safe to go, if that makes sense, whether that right. be a church or um, I do several support groups and I do trainings, and people don't feel intimidated by those trainings or that support group. Audrey? Yeah, you know, and just kind of building off of that, you know, I was just reflecting on my past week, and I, I attended a funeral of a young person who lost their life. Um, and again, mental health is a big part of it. 
And we have to be able to have these conversations. You know, when we're losing young people in our community, that's unacceptable, right? And it's not looking to say, well, what was going on with them? The question is, what's going on with us? Uh-huh. Right? Are we not paying attention, right? As a community, we should be paying attention. Um, and so I think it is important. You often will see some type of changes, right? You'll see people disengage, right? Or some changes in re- regular routines or behaviors. And we kind of stand on the periphery and say, huh, they just, you know, what's going on with so-and-so? But who's actively stepping in and engaging, right? And so we do have to rethink what does it look like to show up, right, and really develop a community of care um, where it's not just that's, you know, their problem or that's so-and-so's kid. These are all our children, right? Mm -hmm. And so we have to really move back to kind of a collectivist mindset and start taking ownership of all the people in our community, especially our young people, who are struggling right now. And again, the holidays may seem like a joyful time for a lot, but it is not for everyone. Mm -hmm. And we have to be mindful of that, right? So when people are walking in and say, happy holidays and marry this and, you know, that and the other, be mindful. It's not happy for everyone. So just sometimes pausing and say, how are you doing, right? And and not the waiting for just the the normal response, right? But but really trying to dig deeper of, you know, what's going on or what is your support network? And asking some of those questions uh, to make sure that people have a community and a support network. There's a lot of personal responsibility on all of us in, in what you just said, Audrey. And you talked about the city of West Des Moines trying to improve that safety infrastructure, that that opportunity to get help when a person needs help. Uh, Mathia has been talking about her church. She's been talking about peer-to-peer counseling through NAMI. Um, we only have about a minute left, but Audrey, what pieces of the puzzle are we missing in Iowa? What else needs to happen and, and who's responsible? Right. Well, really, we have to fund it. Right. We have to understand that there is a funding challenge. Mental health is a priority and we need to prioritize funds to indicate that. Right. And so that's the biggest thing. And I would say the other piece is the communication. Right. So we talk about education, but there has to be communication, um, whether that be between the city, between the schools, between community organizations, mental health uh, providers, NAMI, others. We have to start working together because we cannot solve these problems in isolation. There has to be an interconnectedness of communication of what we're seeing and how do we all respond within our different spheres. Mathia, is there anything you want to add there? Um, I think she touched most of of it. um, It is critical that we do have conversations. We do have funding. In fact, there was an opportunity for NAMI to get considerable funding, and it went went someplace else because they devalued peer um, support systems, which is very difficult, particularly saying most, uh, many of the folks that go to mental health professionals start with the peer organizations. We are out of time, but thank you both so much for being here today. Mathia Little-Smith is a consultant and volunteer for NAMI of Iowa. She also leads the mental health ministry at her Baptist church. Audrey Kennis is director of diversity, equity, and inclusion for the city of West Des Moines. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News.
Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. As the year comes to a close, we've been checking in with some of IPR's music experts to find out about their favorite new releases of 2023. Today, we've got the blues. Blues man Bob Doerr is here, host of Blue Avenue Sundays at 5 p.m. and the Beatles medley Sundays at 6.30 p.m. Hello, Bob. Hello, Charity. It is wonderful to have you here. And I know that asking you to come up with your list of your favorite releases, is that's a huge challenge for you every year because you always have so many. Well, it's taken me at least three days to boil it down to wow. 12. Oh, my gosh. And we're not going to be able to play all 12, but we will what? We will talk about them and we will publish that list online. But there's also an album that you absolutely love that didn't make your list because you couldn't give us a sample? It, that is exactly true. And it's on the list. But um, I, I absolutely love Doug Deming and the Jewel Tones new live record. It, it's called Groovin' at Groove Now Live in Switzerland. And throughout the summer months, I would just play this thing over and over and over again. My jams on the break, I would be playing this. It is just a fab, fabulous release. And somewhere along the line, some club owner has my Doug Deming disc. Oh. So I, I didn't put it on the list because I wasn't able to provide any music for it. But I need to let people know that this is a fantastic release and should be on my list, but you can't hear it now. All right. And if anybody's planning on buying you a holiday gift, that is the one. That would be the one. Thank you. <laughs> no problem. All right, Bob, let's, let's tackle this list. And these are in no particular order as usual. Well, not one through ten. I mean, we're chronologically going to go through this, and it makes some kind of uh, sense for uh, the list, but it's not the best and then the rest. All right. Okay? So So we're going to start out with uh, Savoy Brown. And um, this is the same band that got started in the British Invasion in 1965. It was uh, the leader of the band is Kim Simmons, he died December 13th, 2022, and was working on this record all the way through the entire uh, uh, time of his dealing with cancer, oh, wow. and it came out uh, posthumously. And unfortunately, um, Kim Simmons is playing the best blues of his entire career. Since 1965, the only guy to record every single record by Savoy Brown playing the best blues of his entire life the last couple, three years. It's a shame that uh, uh, cancer took him over. But uh, the track is Blues All Around from the same album, Blues All Around.
Savoy Brown title track from Blues All Around. And what's next, Bob? Um, the first uh, little set of stuff is all uh, noted veteran blues players. So Savoy Brown with Kim Simmons. The next one is Nick Moss, who uh, grew up in Chicago and is just a fervent we're going to do this the way traditional Chicago blues sounds his entire career. He has also enlisted uh, Dennis Grunling, one of the top harmonica players in uh, traditional blues playing, uh, to be part of the band the last uh, two or three releases. So they've really combined dynamic, great guitar playing and songwriting and uh, virtuoso uh, guitar playing and harmonica playing. The uh, latest record by Dick, uh, Nick Moss is Get Your Back Into It, and this is the title track. You see me, and I see you, natural reaction of love so fools. You see me, and I see you. Can't you just uh, hear Muddy Waters in that? Yeah. Oh, man. Oh, it's awesome. Nick Moss Band with Get Your Back Into It. That's the title track off the album. I know you want to mention one we're not going to play here. Yes, I did want to, the the trio of the uh, veteran blues players' new discs, uh, Coco Montoya is out with a new disc. He was the drummer in Albert Collins' band 100 years ago and uh, was the guitar player in John Mayall's band for many, many years. Been out on his own quite a long time. Has just a fantastic record. He's gotten over his alcohol demons and just writing great songs and playing great guitar. So search out Writing on the Wall by Coco Montoya. All right, and what's next? Okay, now we're into a, a set of kind of new things. It, the first one is not new to people who listen to uh, uh, Blue Avenue because I just played the living heck out of the Dig Three's debut album last year. And then Phil Moss went to a Winter Blues Festival in February of this year and recorded them live, and I was just smitten by this group. Really, really simple arrangements, guitar, harmonica, and a multi-instrumentalist that is just phenomenal, Jerry Hunt, plays, dig this, farmer foot drums, percussion, bass six, which is primarily a six-string bass guitar, guitar, harmonica, mandolin, and organ. But what really got me was the farmer foot drums. You're going to hear this record, and you're going to go, wow, that drummer is just sitting right in there. The drums all sounds good, but he's playing it all with his feet. This is an actual instrument, farmer foot drums. It's made in Michigan. You've got to see this rig to believe it. But all the drums that you hear, uh, Jerry is playing with his feet. So uh, go ahead, dig it. The Dig 3, take a ride.
right. I'm going to have to. I've got to see this. <laughs> you, <laughs> that, that's you really, awesome. I mean, to appreciate what's going on, you really have to see this. All right. Um, my, the farmer my, foot drums. My Just search a, engine uh, is going to take me right there. I'm sure ahead, of it. Go ahead and take a search for farmer foot drums. It'll. It's just like Gibson guitars, only it's farmer foot drums. And um, there's a variety of the way they do it, but all those drum sounds being made by the feet. Awesome. That's the Dig 3 with Take a Ride. What's next? Um, now we're on to a, a couple of young guys. D.K. Harrell, this is his debut album. He's 25 years old from Louisiana, but oh my goodness, he says, sounds like uh, Little Milton or B.B. King or Albert King or Freddie King. I mean, he's got the depth of soul and playing that uh, just... You can't believe he's 25 years old and never made a record. The Right Man, the title track from that album. All right, I know you want to mention Nick Clark. I do want to uh, mention Nick Clark because he's kind of my uh, one crossover artist into kind of Americana. 27-year-old Mexican-American Coloradan that uh, really writes catchy tunes. He's a strong harmonica player and uh, should be mentioned on this list because I-, I played him a lot throughout the year on Blue Avenue. And one that's not on the list, so you don't have any recordings, is a a British woman named Emma Wilson. Her new disc is called Memphis Calling. And um, if you're looking for new artists, she should be on the list too. Now, on to a a young man that seemingly everybody already knows, although he's only 24 years old. He's won a Blues Grammy 10 BMAs, the Blues Music Awards from the Blues Foundation, 11 Living Blues Awards. He's only got two releases. He's 24 years old, born in Clarksdale, Mississippi, the crossroads uh, town in blues history. So he's obviously got blues in his DNA. And he's got a two-record CD thing uh, called Live in London, and what did I have out? Hard times. Hard times, yep. Talking to my neighbor, listening to my friend. Everybody's hurt. When's it gonna end? Hard times. Talking about hard times. Kingfish Ingram there with Hard Times live in London. We've just heard a 25-year-old talked about a 27-year-old, and there's a 24-year-old. Wow. So the, the future blues of the blues are is in pretty a, bright. In good hands for the future. Yeah, that's pretty great. Pretty happy about that. That is great. All right, what's next on your list, Bob? Okay, now we're going to move into uh, a couple of my favorite Iowa releases of 2023. The first one from Craig Erickson in uh, from Cedar Rapids. 
the guy travels the world. Uh, he actually played in Deep Purple for a while. That, that's why I say he's probably more famous in Western Europe than he is in Western Iowa. But uh, he's in the Iowa Blues Hall of Fame, the Iowa Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And something that really will uh, catch your interest is he plays all of the instruments that you hear through the entire album except drums. So that includes the vocals, guitar, bass, keyboards, wrote all the songs, produced the album in his own recording studio. You'll be absolutely amazed at this guy's expertise. And the song that we got from Craig Erickson is the title song from the record Modern Blues. Craig Erickson, Modern Blues, the title track from that album. All right, we are going to run out of time here, Bob. So why don't you tell me what else is on your list? We're going to publish this entire list on our website, IPR.org, and then we can play out with your final pick. Does that sound all right? All right, sure. Um, Also on the uh, Iowa list is what I consider to be one of the best Real deal sounding blues things from the Cedar County Cobras. They're a duo. Tom Spielbauer won the Iowa Blues Challenge in 2022 and went as far as the semifinals in the international contest in Memphis. He is the guitar player, songwriter, singer. April Dirks is a PhD mom of two, plays upright bass and mandolin. So uh, just a fantastic duo, uh, their first record in eight years. So you want to check out uh, Homesick Blues by the Cedar County Cobras. Also, a quick mention, uh, this album just came out in the last month or two by Catfish Keith from Iowa City, Wild Ox Moan. He just came back from a tour in uh, the United Kingdom uh, of two months. So put that on your list also for Iowa Blues. Then we're on to uh, Jason Reese. The in my opinion, you know, I'm a harmonica player wannabe and this guy is the best of all time. The uh, song that I had picked out was Baked Potato. If you get this record by Jason Reese called Behind the Veil, he, he, all you have to do is drop it on there and you'll understand why I think the guy is the greatest harmonica player on the planet. And um, also on my list then, because I still do the Beatles medley after 45 years, the last Beatles single, Now and Then. um, Who thought you were going to get a brand new Beatles single this year? That's wild. Exactly. And the last one they're saying, because, uh, you know, uh, Yoko gave the three of them, when George was still alive, uh, a cassette with three of John Lennon's kind of demos that he did. And they worked on this song, uh, all three of those songs, and two of them came out, what, 10 years ago or so. 
And this one has just been sitting there, and through technology now, they've been able to separate uh, John's vocal from his playing, and um, George had left behind guitar parts. So uh, Paul and Ringo went in and redid this song, and all of a sudden, it's like the four of them are playing in the room next to you. So Amazing. you might want to catch that out. It, it it comes on seven inch vinyl, cost me twenty bucks to get two songs, but I had to have it just like all the other <laughs> Beatles fans. All right. Well we're gonna play out with the Beatles now and then, but Bob Dorr, thank you so much. Thank you very much for including me. Bob Dorr, host of Blue Avenue Sundays at five PM and the Beatles Medley Sundays at six thirty PM on Iowa Public Radio's Studio One. You can find this list on our website, IPR.org. I'm